Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Audio Blog, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. Editor's Note by Art Middlecoff Horace West Household was the Secretary for Education of Gloucestershire County in 1916 when he first encountered Charlotte Mason's theory of education. He soon became, in the words of biographer Margaret Coombs, an ardent disciple of Charlotte Mason. He was deeply committed to Mason's ideas and worked tirelessly to promote them within his jurisdiction and across England. He visited Ambleside multiple times, and he understood education in general and Mason's theory in particular. In 1926, three years after Charlotte Mason's death, Household summarized his understanding of the method in his paper entitled, Miss Mason's Method of Teaching in Practice. Greg Rowling is reading that paper for us today. In a way, it almost feels as if Household was writing this paper for us. Elsewhere he wrote, It is not yet the time to measure up her whole achievement. The full harvest is not yet. But there is enough to justify the confidence that posterity will see in her a great reformer who led the children of the nation out of a barren wilderness into a rich inheritance. The old bidding prayers of our homes of learning rise to our lips. The children of many generations will thank God for Charlotte Mason and her work. In this, and in so many other ways, Household got it right. Across the generations and across the ocean, those words of prayerful gratitude that he predicted have come. I have heard them with my own ears. Miss Mason's Methods of Teaching in Practice by Mr. H.W. Household I have been asked to explain the Charlotte Mason PNEU method of education and to illustrate my explanation by setting out numerous examples of work done in English subjects by boys, clever and the reverse of clever, between the ages of nine and fourteen and a half. I have not felt myself precluded from sometimes using papers worked by girls or by children under nine. The examples have all been taken from answers written on one term's work at the Easter examination, number 104, of the PNEU by children in eight elementary schools, seven of them in Gloucestershire and one in Leicestershire. Nothing but considerations of space and time has caused me to restrict the number of schools to eight. It could as easily have been made two or three times as large and would still have been no less convincing. The smallest school selected is F, a little village school near Gloucestershire with 47 children of all ages from 5 to 14 and two teachers. The largest Gloucestershire school is the council school of 251 children at C, a village with a large mining element in it on the edge of the Forest of Dean. Work better in some respects might perhaps have been obtained if papers had been collected from private schools. I would begin by setting out two statements which stand in violent contrast to each other. The first, that of Professor de Selincourt, is taken from a paper entitled The English Secret, which appeared originally in the Literary Supplement of the Times of September 28, 1922. The second is to be found in a pamphlet called Liberal Education in Secondary Schools by Charlotte Mason, which can be obtained for nine pence from the office of the PNEU at 26 Victoria Street, Southwest 1, together with other explanatory pamphlets. Professor de Selincourt says, Our English children are not consumed with anxiety to learn anything. Least of all has it ever crossed their minds that they must learn English. Charlotte Mason says, page 6, 
It has come to us of the Parents' Union School to discover great avidity for knowledge in children of all ages and of every class, together with an equally remarkable power of attention, retention, and intellectual reaction upon the pabulum consumed. And again, page 7, we have made a rather strange discovery, that the mind refuses to know anything except what reaches it in more or less literary form. In fact, in English, good English. Now, once the two positions are so stated, though both are founded on experience, there cannot be a doubt which is the sound one. Children at one stage, under one method, or with one man, want to learn. If at another stage, under another method, or with another man, they do not want to learn, the fault is not in the child. It must be sought elsewhere. To avoid misconstruction, let me say at the outset that no matter what the method or what the type of school or child, the born teacher will always get interest, always inspire the wish to know. And in the schools for which this pamphlet is being written, as in every other type of school, the born teacher is not rare. Of course, the teacher who is not born is much more often to be met with everywhere. There are the conscientious, more or less efficient, but quite uninspiring. And there are those who are not too conscientious, have no sense of mission, or who, though entirely conscientious, are not efficient. We all know the form in which interest wanes, and impositions which should not be needed are many. Which should not be needed? It sounds strange, but experience shows that it is true. The children really want to know, want to learn. There is no need for mark, prize, place, praise, or blame. We have had resort to these aids because our methods and our books are wrong. We shall not, perhaps, be very quick to give them up, but a day may come when we shall cease to rely upon them. Let us briefly examine the Charlotte Mason methods and the principles that lie behind them. Every child, she says, is born with a desire to know much about an enormous number of subjects, and its personality must be respected. We who teach are not to shape the child's mind, but to give it the food and opportunity of exercise that promote growth. The food and the method of feeding, there is what makes the difference between the position of Miss Mason and that of Professor de Selencourt. If knowledge is presented to the boy at first hand by one who really has it to impart in literary form, he is interested at once. The good book always inspires. It, or rather its author, is a teacher who never fails. It is, however, only occasionally, exceptionally, even in the public and preparatory school, that the boys come across a real live book in natural science or history, or any other subject written in good English by a man who wanted to put his readers in touch with the human interest, the urgency, the romance of the subject, and not merely to arrange dry bones for the purpose of defeating an exigent examiner. Textbooks, devoid of form, constructed so as to pump in information to be extracted later, whether by a form master next day or an examiner next year, kill all desire to learn. Interest, however, is not all. The knowledge must be assimilated. The boy must make it his own, touching it by his own personality in such a way that his reproduction becomes original. For that, an effort of concentration is demanded. How shall he be induced to make it? He will do it if he knows that after a single reading he must tell, it may be orally, it may be in writing, 
the substance of what he has read or heard read. This practice of concentration and narration imparts a wonderful power which few adults possess. Can we repeat in order the essential matter of a speech, a sermon, a leading article, an essay, a chapter of a great novel? The attempt will show that we cannot. But these children can. They read once and then narrate, and thereafter they know. And because they're always reading good English, not in one but in many books, they use good English, and their vocabulary expands with great rapidity. The beautiful, consecutive, and eloquent speech of young scholars in narrating what they have read is a thing to be listened to, not without envy. So we have one reading of a set portion of some book of literary merit, no abbreviation or arrangement of it, followed by narration at once, and by an examination at the end of term for which there's been no further preparation. There's been no evening preparation, no hearing of the lesson, no questioning, unless on occasion the narration has shown the need of it, very little explanation. There is great economy of time and a vast amount of ground is covered. The reason why we insist on the use of good books, says Miss Mason, is not that teachers are not eminently capable, but because information does not become knowledge unless a child performs the act of knowing without the intervention of another personality. When we tell, when we question, it is we who do the work and not the child, and truly questions are an impertinence which we all resent. Of course the method is not foolproof, no defensible method can be. The good teacher gets the best results. He will not intervene unnecessarily. When he does intervene, it is with effect. Reading must never be interrupted to explain, or narration to correct, or you make concentration impossible. Explain what needs explanation before you begin. Correct, or better, let other boys correct afterwards. But always remember that the boy need not see all that the adult sees. Be satisfied, be thankful if he is interested, if he enjoys what is read and can tell the substance of it. We have ruined the appeal of many a play and poem by explaining, by surrounding it with notes. Shakespeare without notes is a joy. The children love him. Hedge him about with notes, insist on the child seeing all that dry as dust discovers, and he becomes a horror. Perhaps the most dangerous pitfall for a teacher new to the methods is the temptation to develop mere verbal memory. Boys, especially when they are introduced late to the methods, boys of 12 and 13 whose wish to learn has been driven underground, are very often self-conscious and will not readily narrate. But whether young or old, children in the first few weeks may be slow to narrate, and some teachers yield to the temptation to shorten the passages read until narration becomes a matter of verbal memory. That way there can be nothing but disappointment. If you have patience for a few weeks, the narration will come, and it will arise out of knowledge that has been assimilated and can be given back, and not out of mere verbal memory behind which there's no understanding. Other teachers make the mistake of trying to use some parts of the method and imagine that any book will do. They have heard that the practice of narration leads to the writing of good composition. It may or it may not. That is not the purpose of narration, which is to compel close concentration during the single reading. Having concentrated, you can tell, and having told, you know. But if you have not concentrated, you will not narrate well, either orally or in writing, for you will not have assimilated the material. And children will not concentrate upon books of no merit. 
If you regard the Charlotte Mason method as a bag of tricks of which you can select one or two for adoption, leaving the rest, you will have nothing but disappointment. It is the outcome of a philosophy of education, and you must take all or none. You cannot use her methods and books for teaching literature and developing composition, and use other methods and other books for teaching, say, history and geography. You cannot encourage the boy to get knowledge from the book for himself in one lesson and insist on pumping textbook stuff into him the next. You cannot rely upon interest, a single reading, concentration, and narration today, and upon slow, wearisome preparation of dry facts followed by questions and detention tomorrow. The program hangs together as a whole. Next, in order to religious knowledge, said Miss Mason, history is the pivot upon which our curriculum turns. And history means much more than a little English history, for it is our business to get in touch with other persons of all sorts and conditions, of all countries and climes, of all times past and present. So the boy will have ancient history side by side with the Old Testament, Egyptian, Assyrian, Greek, Roman. He will have French and general European history side by side with English. Geography and history will be in close touch and he will follow the explorers across the globe. Maps are no longer hated, but are used daily. The novels, the plays, the poetry read will be associated with the same period. So, if possible, will the pictures and the music, for picture study and musical appreciation have their place. The wonders of science are thrown open in books no longer like the ordinary textbook, desiccated to the last degree. Some idea of the amount of ground covered in a term's work will be obtained if we set out the compulsory books in the program of Form 2A, ages 10 and 11 for the summer term 1926. Bible lessons, A, Moses and the Exodus, lessons 9 through 16 inclusive, B, St. Mark's Gospel and the Acts, lessons 17 through 24 inclusive, English Grammar, Micklejohn's Short English Grammar, pages 52 through 79, 114 through 124. English History, A History of England by H. O. Arnold Forster, pages 65 through 146, 901 through 1189 A.D. French History, A First History of France by L. Crichton, pages 27 through 46, 910 through 1189 A.D. General History, The Ancient World by A. Mallet, pages 177 through 213. The British Museum for Children by Francis Epps, Chapter 2. Citizenship. North's Plutarch's Lives, Coriolanus, The Citizen Reader by H. O. Arnold Forster, pages 81 through 120. Geography. Western Europe, Cambridge Press, pages 26 through 32, 175 through 226, Balkan States, etc., our Sea Power by H.W. Household, pages 24 through 51, or Hacklight's English Voyages, pages 47 through 95. Round the Empire by Sir George Parkin, pages 1 through 29. Natural History, Life and Her Children by Arabella Buckley, pages 135 through 166. The Sciences by E.S. Holden, pages 1 through 34 or The Mysterious Ocean of Ether by C.R. Gibson, pages 5 through 39. Reading, including holiday and evening reading, Shakespeare's Coriolanus 
Blackie, Plain Text Edition, Lytton's Herald, Bullfinch's Age of Fable, pages 248 through 277, Robin Hood, Oxford Press. In addition, there are a number of optional books, and of course, due provision is made for mathematics, languages, drawing, handicraft, music, physical exercises, etc. Where's the time for this? An analysis of the timetables will show. As will be seen, the hours of parents' union schools are light, for they have neither afternoon school nor evening preparation. Form 1A, it may be explained, covers the years 7 and 8. Form 2, the years 9, 10, and 11. Forms 3 and 4, the years 12 to 15. The Parents' Union School Analysis of Timetables. Forms 6 and 5, periods of 30 to 45 minutes. English, including history, grammar, literature, economics, etc., 8 hours, 10 minutes. Mathematics, 3 hours. Science, 4 hours, 10 minutes. Languages, 6 hours, 10 minutes. Drill, 2 hours, 30 minutes. Total, 24 hours. Forms 4 and 3, periods of 20 to 45 minutes. English, 8 hours, 25 minutes. Mathematics, 3 hours. Science, 3 hours, 20 minutes. Languages, 4 hours, 45 minutes. Drill, etc., 3 hours. Total, 22 hours, 30 minutes. Form 2, A and B, periods 20 to 30 minutes. English, A, 7 hours, 20 minutes. B, 8 hours, 50 minutes. Mathematics, A, 3 hours. B, 2 hours, 30 minutes. Science, 2 hours, 10 minutes. Languages, A, 2 hours, 30 minutes. B, 1 hour, 30 minutes. Drill, etc., 3 hours. Total, 18 hours. Form 1, A and B, periods 10 to 20 minutes. English, 6 hours, 20 minutes. Arithmetic, 1 hour, 50 minutes. Science, 1 hour, 10 minutes. French, 40 minutes. Handicrafts, 2 hours. Drill, 3 hours. Total, 15 hours. 1. The lighter portions of the literature, verse, play, or poems are read for amusement in the evenings and also in the holidays. 2. Less time may be given, if desired, in any form to science and modern languages, and more to classics and mathematics. The English periods may not be altered. 3. Music, handicrafts, fieldwork, dancing, nature notebooks, century books are taken in the afternoons. But more convincing than any statement of principles or explanation of methods is the work of the children themselves. In the examples that follow, I have been scrupulous to copy exactly, without variation of any kind, what they wrote. It should be noted that these children in the elementary schools work longer hours than those indicated on the timetables above, and that they take no foreign language. Anybody who is interested and wishes to know more should go or write to the secretary of the PNEU at 26 Victoria Street, Southwest 1. He can also be put in touch there with schools of various types that are following the methods and using the programs. The children themselves seen working in their classes are even more convincing than their papers, and it is good to see the methods at work and to hear what the teachers have to say. To read the student samples selected by H.W. Household, please visit the episode page at charlottemasonpoetry.org. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes.
Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry audio blog. We hope you enjoyed the program.